Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest is teacher by day, comedian by night, Tim Finkel. He has traveled and performed on as many stages as his wife has given him permission to. His musings on family life, distaste for other people's children, and being a dad will make you wonder if having kids is right for you or him. Despite his constant lack of sleep, Tim brings a farcical energy to the stage that sheds light on the dark side of middle-aged modern parenting that no one is willing to confess. Tim's the creator of Laughs for Wishes, a benefit for Make-A-Wish. He also teaches a teen comedy class at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Tim teaches positive mental health and resiliency through the power of laughter. Tim, thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited to have you. Where I saw you for the first time perform was actually at TEDx Detroit that you gave a phenomenal talk on. So I want to start there. What was it like giving that speech? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. That was quite lovely. And thank you for having me on. I I really appreciate it. You had reached out to me after TEDx, which was very flattering. Um, That experience was, uh, it was amazing. It was cathartic. The topic that I had talked about, as you know, was death and grief, which is typically not something that we often view as uh, funny or lighthearted or anything like that. But that's why I wanted to kind of one, share my story, and then two, kind of inspire people to change the way they view grief, because it's something that I have learned uh, throughout the last 13 years after uh, unexpectedly uh, losing my older brother on my 30th birthday, um, which is a challenging thing in and of itself. You know, I'd always been a huge fan of the TED events. I often say that if everyone could go to a TED event like every six months or so, most of the problems we have in the world uh, probably wouldn't exist. You know, it's just an incredibly positive environment, inspiring environment. And, you know, I'm a 43-year-old man. At this age, few things live up to expectation. Um, This one exceeded that expectation. I even reached out to uh, Charlie, who's one of the organizers, and said, you know, I have to keep this close to me moving forward. Um, I would love to commit to volunteering for the event every year moving forward. If I can have that in my sights every year to look forward to, I'm pretty certain that will keep wind in my sails. I love that. And it's so true because that actually was my first one. It's mm-hmm. I don't know why other years I never went to it. I think it just fell on a bad week with my bad luck. So or I was out of town or something would happen. But it was it was very interesting. So and it was a nice mix of people. I had a really good time with it. Something we talked about before we started rolling and recording, you said you had a shift in your career that you got into comedy and you did share that story on the TEDx talk. So If you feel comfortable, I would love to hear more on what made you finally take that leap and to go into comedy. Absolutely. I I don't know how much I even had a choice of it. Uh, But as I shared in my TED talk, you know, my my oldest brother had passed away on my birthday, uh, which is a, you know, it's challenging in and of itself. When it's on your birthday, it's extraordinarily more challenging. And my my wife never, re- I have a wonderful wife. She never really knew how to approach that day moving forward. And one year, uh, she bought me a class at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle here in, in Royal Oak, Michigan. I didn't know the class existed. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who taught it. I had just always been a big fan of comedy. And my wife took it upon herself to kind of 
realized that that could be a nice void for me to fill. And she gave me the class the morning of my birthday. And she said, you have to leave for it in two hours. And, you know, I think one of the big laughs I got at TEDx is when she told me to keep the day opened. I assumed we were going to a pumpkin patch or somewhere that I had zero interest in. And, uh, but no, it was the greatest gift um, anyone's given me. And as I said in my TED talk, she often regrets it, <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah. Right. Got a little more than what she bargained for, but that's awesome. Yeah. My favorite thing about you is because I have a very dark sense of humor. So I was cracking up and you had shared some stories about, you know, cracking death jokes and just like oh, yeah. bringing it to light, which I love because myself and my family, we are very open, like unfortunately have dealt with death a lot. But how has that kind of been cathartic for you or what's kind of goes through your head? when you do that? Or what made you kind of decide like dark humor is going to be my jam? Yeah, it's interesting, because I think if you talk to most of my comedian friends, or like people who enjoy my comedy, I would say that most folks regard me as not dark at all. Um, I smile on stage a lot. I never realized how much I smile on stage until someone pointed it out. So I think in comedy, I really try to embody all the different types of emotions and human experiences and things like that. It just so happens that, you know, dark things happen to people as well as silly, funny things as well. And I think it's important. It's equally important, I think, to laugh at all of those things. You know, I, I really believe humor and comedy is, is one of the greatest equalizers uh, that we have. It's cliche to say, but I do think it's the best medicine. And I do think it's something that brings people together and that sort of thing. So, you know, while I do jokes about, you know, my son quoting inappropriate rap lyrics at Sunday school, you know, I also do jokes about my brother dying. And, you know, those are things that I believe are pretty universally uh, relatable, you know, regardless on your your background or culture or anything like that. So that's what I look for in comedy. I just look for that common thread that binds us all. Because, you know, if there's one thing I think I've learned through comedy, it's that most of us are not very different from one another. Although sometimes we're we're led to believe that. That's true. That is so true. Yeah. It's funny enough, I have such a wild fascination with comedians. I mean, that's my go-to whatever movie, whatever special, I'm like, whatever comedy special, like I'm watching it. I think I've watched just about every single one on Netflix so far, funny enough. But the fascination is just how do you come up with these things? How do you keep it rolling? I mean, I have 5 million questions, but mm -hmm. what is the art behind? I guess my question would be, what did you learn in that class that kind of like helped you develop who you are today? Because I have mm -hmm. just 5 million questions about this. So the class at Ridley's and the, the instructor who teaches it, he'll tell you up front, he'll say, I can't teach you how to be funny. I can coach you to have the confidence to get up there to do it. I can share with you the experience that you are going to experience, which is oftentimes great and amazing. And oftentimes, especially when you're first starting, is an experience where you kind of get in your car after driving four hours to do an open mic for five minutes for no money and you bomb and you get in your car and you think like, why do I even do this? Like, what was the point of any of this? And I think one important thing to, to keep in mind when you're watching comedy and, and when you're watching 
any comic, regardless of if they're your type of demographic or not, is the amount of hours that went into that product that you're looking at. Like uh, people watch a comedy special and a lot of times people are delusioned and think like, oh, this just fell out of the sky. This is just a funny guy getting on stage. But they often don't realize it's no different than a musician who learned how to play like an incredible guitar solo by repetition and by reps and by, you know, stage time and by a tremendous amount of failure. Um, when you first start, you fail quite often more than you succeed. However, where the addictive nature of it comes in is when that joke does land. It's like gambling. It's like the slot machine theory. You know every time you pull down that slot machine, you're not going to hit the jackpot, but you know that the opportunity's there. And then when you do, that feeling is the greatest feeling in the world. And you're like, well, now I want to repeat that. And I want to repeat it as many times as I can. So to answer your question, really, it's like everyone has a different process of how they approach comedy, but everyone fails at it and they fail quite a bit. So like all your favorite comics you're watching on Netflix, I guarantee you they all have incredible bombing stories and they probably have more memorable bombing stories than the stories of where they just had unbelievably great shows. Because with time, your batting average goes up. You get funnier, you get better at learning how to write a joke, you get better at gauging an audience and knowing what's appropriate and like what lane you can go down with them and what you can't. Um, but your batting average goes up in time. But at first, it's not very good. <laughs> You're not hitting the ball too often. <laughs> Do you have a good flopping story or like your most traumatic, like, mm. oh shit story? I love asking people this. Yeah. Or, or maybe even a great story that you were just like, wow, I killed it. I did amazing tonight. You know, any of the nights where you do amazing are just the nights that like, uh, even just like how you reached out and said, you know, you enjoyed my TED talk. Like, those are the great times. And I think I said this in my talk, distilled down comedy is nothing more than making a human connection. So the nights that are great are the nights where the energy in the room is just electric and you leave knowing that everybody in that room had an incredible shared experience and you were the one kind of guiding all of that. Those are the great nights. Um, those over time blur together you know there's certain things but the bombing ones don't one of the worst ones i had once was uh i got paid to do a show at a bikini bar um which Ooh. but it was like a variety show which doesn't really work for comedy very well and then when i got there this was not like a bikini bar where like um the uh the goods were very odd, I guess you could say. And uh, you, most of the folks in bikinis at this bar, you probably would have paid money for them to put more clothes. <laughs> and uh, the event was just weird. It was a weird dichotomy of human beings. And um, I was on, when I look at it, the lineup I was on was an incredible mix of Detroit comics who all are still doing it, all have really good careers going um, so it was like a great, talented lineup, but um, these people were not there to see comedy, nor was the room set up correctly or anything like that. And just for like 90 minutes straight, I watched myself and all of my friends who are incredible comics go up there and just bomb horribly. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, that just happens some nights. It's, uh, I had one night where the headliner, I was the feature act, which is the middle act, and the headliner I was working for had overserved himself prior to the show. Uh oh. And about five minutes in, he like walked off stage because he was too inebriated. And I had already <laughs> done like a 30 minute set, which at the time, like 30 minutes was 80% of my material. And, uh, then he walked off stage and then the, just the room was completely awkward. And then the club owner looked at me and was like, can you get up there and do more time? And I'm like, I, I'll try. So like, I got up there and, and did like 52 minutes or something of just garbage. And it was awkward. And but we got through the show. See, I feel like that wasn't even your fault. Like, that's like you, no, you no, came no, no, no. to your set. Like, oh, that's so tough. At least you got, you had a shared memory with the other comics, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, over time, you kind of learn to embrace nights you don't do well. And, um, you know, like I said, you learn to uh, you don't let the highs get you too high or the lows get you too low. And uh, you kind of stay right in the middle ground there. I love that. Now, from your bio, of course, you said you talk about. I love this. Like if having kids is right for you and everything and kind mm. of the the topics people do not discuss. So what does a show of yours look like or what topics do you typically like to talk about and why is that important for you to do that? Yeah. So when I started doing comedy, I had a 22 month old son at home and a seven day old son at home. Wow. A great time in your life to go through a midlife crisis and decide to take up an obsessive <laughs> hobby, right? When, when you're most needed. So that combined with, I was also a teacher uh, for 21 years. So I was still teaching at the time, teaching high school students. And my, you write what you know about. You write about the world that you see around you. My world just so happened to be nothing but behavior management from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed. So it was really hard to not write about that. So like kind of the angle that I took from the get-go was that, you know, I'm on Facebook and I'm looking at all of my friends with children and they're dressing them up in these adorable clothes and they're going on these incredible family trips and they're only posting about the, like, amazing, great things that are going on with their kids. But I know in the background that's all just kind of a facade. Having kids is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I love being a parent, but a large majority of it sucks and is inconvenient and is not fun and is very sacrificial to your own personal self. And I thought, you know, a lot of the shows I do have middle-aged parents who are getting out of the house. It's such a treat for them to get out of the house. And I thought, hey, let's talk about how crazy it is to like raise a human being and like how shitty some of the aspects of it are and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the angle that I go with. Um, same thing with marriage too. Like I, I have an incredible marriage. I have a great wife, but marriage, same thing. A lot of it is very difficult and sucks. So like I have a big belief in comedy that when you can laugh at something, you take all of the power away from it. So if you can laugh about how challenging it is raising kids, then you're maybe not going home at the end of the day and bottling all that up and having it 
you know, explode in a, a worse area. So that's just kind of been my voice that I found. Um, more recently, I've been trying to write away from that a little bit more just because I don't want to be the guy who only talks about like family stuff. However, most people can relate to that because whether you have kids, you were a kid at one point. We all were. So a lot of it's uh, relatable. Right. It is so funny because my I, my friend has a newborn and she just, I mean, I get the real side of it with, you know, the Snapchats or the pictures of or videos of her daughter screaming her head off because she's colicky. Like, I'm like nobody posts about that online of that she screams her head off for five to six hours a day. But I love that you bring the light that because it is relatable. And it's not that you're saying you hate your wife or you hate your kids. It's just saying these things take work and you have to do that. So I love yeah. that. I'm very excited that it's the holiday season right now because over time you kind of develop seasonal jokes. So jokes <gasps> that are in season. And I do a joke about um, this whole trend of everybody posting photos of themselves with their families on Facebook in matching Christmas pajamas. And uh, it's one of my favorite jokes currently. And just, you know, how absolutely ridiculous this is and all the work that went into that ridiculous moment of you all wearing matching Christmas pajamas and then how like my father in 1985 like wouldn't have been caught dead wearing matching Christmas pajamas. Right. That's what I want to know where these families come up with this idea. You hate each other 90% of the year but hey we're going to get together and we're going to wear matching pajamas just for one day. I agree. Someone out there is making a yacht payment off those matching pajamas. Right. Marketing those and selling them and who came up with the idea of that. Like, you know, there's a lot of people trying to make money off your family and your kids. I learned that, too, as a parent. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All these emails and these Black Friday, Cyber Monday and oh, everything around the holidays. So I feel yeah. that. Now, I don't know why this is so fascinating to me, but I guess I never thought about being taught about how to be a stand up comedian, but mm. it makes sense. So I want to know. What is it like being a student in one of your classes that you teach? With comedy, it's interesting because everybody thinks, let people go to a comedy show and then they think, I can do that. <laughs> uh, they're just up there talking. And the answer is, yes, you likely could do that, but you're not going to do it instantly. And that's like the delusion because we're just talking up there. People don't often understand how a premise turns into a joke and a punchline is developed and timing and pacing. And it's really creative math that you're doing. Um, so in my class, which is focused specifically for teenagers, because I, I was a high school teacher the majority of my career, first thing we do on the first day is uh, we get the students on stage because we want them to be comfortable. It's at Mark Ridley's. So they're on the same stage as like, you know, Ron White and some of the greats have, have shared. And uh, we get them on stage. And I first start by sharing my story of how I got into it. And then I explain to the students that there's something horribly wrong with every one of them in this room. Uh, because they want to do stand-up comedy, which uh, nice. they're not out, you know, maybe some of them play football and stuff like that, but they're not out, you know, trying out for the basketball team. You're, you're at a comedy club wanting to tell jokes to complete strangers. That's a ridiculous idea. So 
we get them on stage and I and I want to learn about their story. I want to learn about who they are and what even brought them to want to do this. And nine times out of 10, there's a very interesting story behind that. Uh, there's generally very interesting motivation. And from that, you kind of start the seed for what their voice is going to be. Because that's the goal of all comedy. You want to develop your own voice, your own unique perspective that's relatable to, to other people, but then like kind of unique to your own self. The second thing that I do with them then is I ask each one of them something that they are very insecure about or something that they don't like about themselves or things like that. And we do that on day one and we do that from the stage. And then we write like a simple one-liner joke about that. And I'm like, all right, you have your opening joke now. You know, so they go up there and, you know, they can make fun of how they look or whatever and something like that. They immediately now have a joke to start writing a seven minute set from that is disarming to the the audience. You know, that's one thing when a comic can go up. When you watch comedy specials from now on, pay attention. Generally, the first three jokes is a self-deprecating joke. And there's a reason behind that, because if you can laugh about yourself, you're immediately giving the audience permission to laugh about anything you're going to talk about from that point forward. So we work on that in the first class. And then from there on, you know, we just start working on joke structure. I give them like little pieces of homework uh, to work on throughout the week and then uh, have them bring their material. And then we just sit there and, and we work it out and we hit the pause button and we, you know, I help them add a little tag here and there and that sort of thing. But that's kind of the the gist of it. Like I said, you can't teach someone how to be funny, but you can give them the tools that they need. You can set up the expectations and you can be their cheerleader, um, which really helps. I need to go watch all these comedy <laughs> specials now because I, I love that piece of information because it's so true. But now I'm just thinking back of all the ones I've watched recently and I'm you are 100% right. They're always self-deprecating jokes. So very fascinating. There's all sorts of tricks to the whole trade. And the more you watch, I mean, I watch comedy just as much as I perform it. And like whenever I'm on a show too, I always watch all the other comics, regardless of where I'm at in the lineup, because I, I enjoy watching comedy just as much. However, I rarely laugh at comedy anymore um, because I'm like a chef now who's like making the meal. You know what I mean? And so you understand right. what they're doing. You're like, oh, that's, they use this structure. They use the rule of three on that. They did this. And like, you just kind of, and then every once in a while you see someone go up there who doesn't follow any of the rules and kills. And then you're like, all right, now we have a whole new genre of comedy that someone just invented. And that happens, you know, every few years. You're so analytical with it. You're like, oh, this is why you did this. And it's a puzzle and that happens. And that's so true. And I feel like a lot of people do that with their own craft. And I love that you're so ingrained in it. Like, Funny enough, I don't even listen to other podcasts and I have a podcast. Oh. <laughs> I'm kind of the opposite on that. But I feel like it's either you're so ingrained in your art or it's like, oh, I do this, so I don't want to listen to it or do it myself. So it's fascinating. I like that. Yes, yeah, comics make it a point to not listen to other comedians just because they don't want any of that influence like seeping into their brain or anything like that. Um, because there's infinite topics you can talk about. However, there 
isn't an infinite amount of topics that like maybe everyone will relate to across the whole country or something like that. So for every joke premise you give me, I can say like, well, this person does this angle on it. This person does this angle on it. So interesting. Now, you created Laughs for Wishes, which is a part of Make-A-Wish, you said. I want to hear about this because this sounds incredible. How'd you get the idea to create it? And what do you do with it? I should say I feel a little guilty that this is still in my bio because it's something that's gone by the wayside over the last few years here. Well, there's been a pandemic. I mean, you get some, you know, that whole thing happened, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's something that I would like to kind of have a resurgence of here. But um, basically, for years, I worked with Make-A-Wish of Michigan prior to comedy, one of my obsessions was cycling. And I I raced road bikes, I raced mountain bikes, all of that, like very passionately. And every year I would do an event called the Wish a Mile 300, which was a 300 mile bike ride um, that started in Traverse City and then came down to lower Michigan over three days. So it's like 100 miles a day. And um, I was on a team called Team Alex where we would raise money for the Wish Mile. And we were always like one of the top earning teams for close to two decades. And um, wow. when I started comedy, I think I was like six months into comedy when I organized the first event. And I was in way over my head. Like I didn't know anything about producing shows or, but I managed to pull it off and do pretty well. But yeah, it was just a comedy event that raised money for. Uh, Make-A-Wish, and then we specifically kind of did it under the umbrella of Team Alex, which was the charity bike team that I rode for, for Make-A-Wish. And uh, yeah, we called it Laughs for Wishes. That's awesome. And now you're making me feel guilty because I feel like I need to... I'm sorry, you had it in your bio. I know, there's these, there's sick kids out there, man. They need these dick and fart jokes to raise money for them. God, Tim, come on. Be better. Come on. <laughs> Hey, there's not enough time for everything. Yeah. So, and with the pandemic, I mean, it made things so weird. And I feel like a lot of events or a lot of people, at least that have come on this podcast, have said they either haven't done their special event they mm. do every year or it's finally happening in 2023. So don't feel bad. You're not the only one. But hey, maybe this will be the resurrection. I think of it. it might be. You may be the catalyst. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Now, what do you have in store for you in the future? Because you did your TED Talk, you're gaining traction. I mean, obviously, you perform at all these shows. Now that I know who you are, I feel like I'm hearing your name more and more and more. But what's in store for you in the future? That's a great question. I was just on a podcast like two weeks ago where someone asked me this question. And my answer for that, I felt guilty as well, because... uh I also have like a career in addition to comedy um, and I work for like an ed tech company and it's a very all consuming job. I'm about a year and a half into it now. And one thing I've noticed is a little secret about comics is we think about nothing but comedy all day long. Uh, so like all of human experience is viewed through a comedic lens and everything that happens is potential material. This job requires a tremendous amount of attention. And I feel like in the last like eight months, really, I've kind of put a little more of my eggs in that basket into my day job. Um, so to answer your question, where I, I would like to get back to the momentum I had with comedy, maybe about this time last year, 
And I would like to learn how to balance my life a little bit better. Um, So how to be able to kind of keep the needle being moved in comedy, but along with work and then along with family, um, which is a, it's a challenging thing to do. I think I do it pretty well now, but with comedy and with anything, you know, professionally, you have levels to it, right? And so you like reach a certain level and then now it's time to level up. And in order to do that, it requires doing something differently or or additionally or smarter or something like that. And I feel like right now with comedy, I'm kind of at like a plateau at the moment um, in terms of opportunity if I'm not going to do something differently. Um, so I think within the next year, I want to focus on quality ways that I can kind of move up to that next level while not letting everything else in my life go to the wayside. That might be my favorite answer because it's realistic and it's not like, oh, I got all these things and look, I can wear 10,000 hats and I'm still happy and healthy mentally and physically because it's hard. I mean, I had my company as a side business till I got fired and then worked three jobs to get there. And I wasn't married or had kids or a dog at the time. So it's a lot. And it's so difficult to keep everything in the air, juggling it at the same time. So that's perfect answer. I've been looking into cloning myself, like how how realistic that may be. (laughs) Let me know when you figure it out, because your girl wants to know, too. I'm like, I should read a book. I shouldn't scroll TikTok for three hours. I should read a book, but I don't want to read anything. I want to watch stupid videos. Thank you. Yeah, you know, that's something I've tried to be more cognizant of more recently is just like how many things I do that are like just wasteful of time Um, because I do have to be incredibly economical with my time. Um, So yeah, I think that's uh, a good takeaway for anyone, regardless of if you like comedy or not, uh, (laughs) to try to not waste a lot of time because we only have a, a short amount of it. So, Amen to that. And my last question as we wrap up, and we'll have anyone listening, we'll have all Tim's links in the show notes. So if you want to follow him, see where he's performing next. But my last question for you, Tim, any advice for listeners? Uh, well, I feel like I kind of gave good advice just there. Don't waste time. Um, I would good. say uh, most of the things that I've done in life that have been memorable and, and made me feel like I accomplished something or, or something that I can be proud of involved uh, putting myself in what I would consider very vulnerable situations um, and very kind of scary situations. So any advice that I would give someone is if there's something you're thinking about doing, but you maybe are not going to do it because it's fear-based or, um, you know, you're afraid to fail or something like that, I would recommend you do that exact thing um, because that's going to be what defines you. Um, That's going to be, I kind of like to go by this philosophy of like, if your life was a book that someone was writing about you, make it something someone would actually want to read. You know, if there's something that you want to do, but you're afraid to do it, just do it. And you know, if you fail, that's not terrible. And if you succeed, that's amazing. And yeah, I mean, I, I switched careers in the middle of my life 
which was a very scary thing to do. It's a huge risk to take, but you know, it's also been incredibly rewarding and personally defining. So yeah, if you got something, don't wait, just do it. Perfect way to wrap this up. And I never thought of that. If someone was writing a book about you, make it interesting. Ooh, I'm going to steal that. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one. Tim, this was so much fun. I'm excited to keep following along on your journey and see what awesome things you're going to do next or what jokes you're going to come up with. And those of you listening, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.